Hello and welcome to Dog Talk with me, your host, Nick Benger, the ultimate podcast to help you take the next step in your dog training journey by learning from the best experts from around the world. Hello, what's up guys? Thanks so much for all of the love on the Shirag episode and I know it's been a little while since I've released anything. I've just kind of been crazy busy and fallen off the wagon a little bit. But what I want to do today is follow through on the Q&A episode that I promised everyone. This is probably going to be a bit of a strange experimental episode and I'm probably going to ramble a lot. I've not got anything prepared other than the questions in front of me and we'll just see how it goes. So uh, about a month ago, I asked you all for questions to submit your questions on dog training and I'll do my best to answer them. So I've got in front of me uh, quite a few questions and I'm not going to get to all of them because you've sent me so many. But what I'll do is every time I do these ep- do these episodes, uh, should they be popular, I'll just answer more of them and, and we just start working through them like that. So rather than ramble on right at the beginning, let's just get straight into it. So let's start answering some of these huge pile of questions. So Natalie asks, your podcast speaks a lot to being aware of the selected traits for certain breeds and accommodating dogs in training techniques with reasoned expectations of their breed type. I find it fascinating, but I have only had mixed breed dogs. My current puppy's picture is attached. My question is, how do I learn which tendencies might be part of her genetic coding and therefore need a certain type of skill or accommodation versus tendencies that are either a result of her environmental shaping, perhaps before I got her, or potential training issues coming from my beginner delivery of rewards, I assume. Specifically thinking about her running after a bighorn sheep on an off-lead walk when otherwise she remains pretty engaged with me on these walks. I'm listening to your predatory chase episode now, by the way. Maybe a more general question is how to accommodate or be knowledgeable about about mixed breed training. I think there's a lot to go, go over here. So firstly, I think sometimes people get sucked into this portal of thinking that a s- specific breed needs a specific style of training. You know, you, you hear it all of the time. Um, either X and X breed can't be trained. I've heard that all the time. Bull Terriers can't be trained. Shiba Inus can't be trained. You know, just insert the breed and people will tell you that you can't train them, which is, of course, completely ridiculous. Susan Friedman has a really good bit on this where she talks about talking to her mentor about how you can't train parrots. And uh, her mentor says, well, that's strange. You can train every other... I'm going to butcher this. You can you can train every other animal on Earth. What is so different about parrots? And he just he framed it as this question, and it really took Susan back. And I thought that that summed it up well. We can train every other species on Earth, but we can't train this particular animal. Um, recently, I was reading The Secret Life of Trees or something like that. I can't remember the exact name of the book. And what was really fascinating about it was it was talking about how trees essentially learn you know they respond to stimuli and change their behavior which is just basically behaviorism so this is a roundabout way of saying 
when you look at behavior, you really need to break it down regardless of the breed of the dog. Now, all of that said, obviously breeds have certain influences. So some dogs are going to be more likely to chase the sheep than others. And the same thing with individuals. There's a really cool piece that the Braylands posted on this back in 1961 called The Misbehavior of Organisms. And it talks about, it's actually talking about species. So it talks about a raccoon that they trained and they kept having this issue of the raccoon washing, uh, I think it was a rock or a counter or something like that. And they were really struggling to get rid of this behavior. And the reason for that is because it was, as you put it, uh, Natalie, genetically coded. It's such a strong behavior that it, they really struggled to get rid of it so i think the same kind of exists with breeds to some degree where you might have a breed say like a lurcher that has been so bred to hunt um or respond to visual stimuli things moving fast and respond to that with chase that you're against uh, basically fighting against um some of the dog's genetics there but essentially you need to look at it in the same way and really what it comes down to in the case of this bighorn sheep that you were talking about, you know, you says you said she remains engaged with me, but then she ran after this bighorn sheep. Well, I mean, we can look at that from a differential reinforcement perspective. OK, so what she did was when she saw this sheep, that was her antecedent to chase it. And the consequence was probably she had a lot of fun chasing it. Right. So. We need to figure out, well, what do we want the dog to do instead? And this is where engagement becomes so valuable because you can make the sheep the cue for the dog to engage with you, right? Like, this is... <laughs> I think people don't realize the value of engagement is so freaking important. If we, If you just have your dog on a lead so everyone is safe and then every time that they see a sheep, just stop, wait for the eye contact mark and reward right until the antecedent of seeing the sheep no longer cues chasing instead it cues engagement with you right and i mean people in sports do this all the time where they would do something like that and then they'll also build up some kind of other reward like a toy or something like that they build up the value of the toy so you have some kind of uh predatory outlet if you want to call it that and then you can start to reward that engagement uh, with getting to play with that toy, which is a just a nice little way of a nice little tactic or a way of handling it, but really it just comes down to differential reinforcement. So to answer your question, I think first look at it as being behavior instead of getting too kind of dragged into this breed versus that breed, but then also just having a, a basic level of understanding of the breeds so you know what to expect in terms of genetics. But again, it's not always sacred. You know, sometimes you come across dogs that buck the trend. Um, but for example, knowing that collies like to herd, right? So when you see those behaviors uh, materialize, then you know that there's a genetic component in that. But again, it, it's not to say that you can't train collies not to herd children or something like that. You know, the, you can put controls on that. And and as far as mixed breed training goes, well, I mean, if you have a, a collie crossed with a, uh, I don't know, like a, a beagle or something, then you might see a mixture of the, the two um, trends, uh, the, the two uh, trends in, in those breeds' behavior. Or you might see uh, more collie behaviors or more beagle behaviors. 
But again, really focus in on the behavior and don't get too sucked into the this breed versus that breed stuff. All right. I'm already rambling. <laughs> I hope you guys are enjoying this. So uh, the second question comes from Connie. Connie says, how do I have a realistic expectations conversation with people who want you to use your fairy wand? Example, my dogs, which are eight-month-old littermates, are fighting over bones and one of them is killing my chickens and I am leaving on vacation in three weeks and I don't want my dad, who is watching the dogs, to have to deal with this. Um, this is an actual email that Connie got from, from someone uh, that was looking for her services. She says, Yesterday, I probably lost a client because I gave her an answer over the phone that would have been better in person once she met me. She is one-year-old twins who just started crawling and a 10-year-old Yorkie who has snapped at the children when they crawl near him and touch him. I mentioned training and management as options we could explore, but I focused on management. She was totally against the idea of management and wanted the dog to learn the kids were the dog's friends. How much of your time during a consult is spent problem-solving the family dynamics that are at the root of the cause of the dog's behavior issue and how do you do it without offending anyone? This is a this is a very interesting one because I think a lot of dog trainers do mess this up. And I think that the answer lies in your question, Connie, which is you said yesterday I probably lost a client because I gave her an answer over the phone that would have been better in person once she had met me. Right. Well, what that tells me is sometimes there are things that you need to build some relationship to tell people first. Right. Like you see this. Um, like we do this with dogs all the time, right? Like we talk about building a, a bank of positive experiences and it's the same when you're coaching someone, you know, you are going to come across stuff when you're coaching people that you might be presented with lots of different things and some of them are going to be quite cr cringeworthy, but you might just make the decision. You can't bring that up immediately because you're going to alienate that person. Now, again, you have the balance of making sure that this dog and the twins are safe right because obviously you have a duty to try and keep everyone protected but building a relationship is huge in order to be able to tell people stuff that uh is a little bit harder to hear um to your question though connie i mean when i do the phone call so usually this is really comes down to your business and, and your process of working with clients so when I get an inquiry from someone, they have to book a phone call with me. They book a phone call with me. We have the 10 minute conversation, probably similar to what you had. But right there, I try, do my best to set expectations. I spoke to uh, Chris Pockle a little bit about this, where I try to lay the foundations of this isn't going to be a quick fix. This is going to be something that potentially uh, is going to take some time to work on. Are you committed to doing that? Right. And usually you do have some social pressure because they're on the phone with you and they've called you and they're looking for someone to help them. That They are probably going to say yes. And I fully accept that. But you've just planted the seed there. And then also I've started to steal Chris's suggestion, which was on a scale of one to ten, how committed you are resolve to res how committed are you to resolving this problem? Right. Again, you're you're starting to get an idea of, of what is going on here. Another question I love is, what happens if you don't resolve this issue? Right? 
so we lay that out on the table straight away. And also we plant the seed of if this doesn't work, what happens and how committed are we to preventing that from happening, essentially, right? This is all just leading them in to realizing that this is going to be a long-term commitment, potentially, and potentially they might have to do stuff that isn't 100% convenient for them, right? Like put in, put in uh, management protocols. Um, but you, but I don't generally go into advice on the phone. And a lot of that is to do with trying to form the relationship first. And I think maybe that's a mistake you made here, Connie, it, in pure, you know, purely trying to help this person out. Um, but accidentally alienated them. And I think you kind of answered the question there for yourself. So yeah, I lay all of those foundations in the phone call. And then when I go to see them, I, immediately I want to to build some kind of rapport with them, talk to them about stuff that, other than dog training as well. Uh, that's a great way of forming a relationship with them, get an understanding of the whole case before I start offering advice, because you never know, there might be other elements to it or stuff that we just don't understand. And then we can look into management. And usually you're trying to sell management as a, a short to a short term solution while we're doing the training. I mean, that isn't always the case, but most of the time it's the case. And then you just have, I mean, I'm probably telling you how to do your job now, Connie, but you just have management, which keeps both animals, both animals, um, the children and the, uh, the dog safe. Right. So whether that's going to be puppy pens, crates, whatever, some kind of separation. And then, also, you want to give them some kind of training task that is going to enable them to make progress. And I think that that is really oftentimes what clients want. They want you to tell them, what do I do from a training perspective to get my dog over this? And if they feel like they have something to work on, then usually I find they're better with the management, where as opposed to if you just give them the management, because sometimes people feel like management is just going to keep them at a neutral. And to be fair, well... Not always, but a lot of the time that is the case, right? It's just keeping everyone safe and that's extremely important. And they called you because they want to see progress with this issue, not just stagnation, right? Um, but we all know the value of management. So yeah, build a relationship with, with the client, preferably before you have to tell them any advice really, but um, certainly anything that's going to be... Uh, uh, gonna have the potential to alienate them and um and and you can usually sell management to them as well in the way that you talk on the phone so for example if if i'm confronted with a situation like this with kids and dogs stuff's going wrong um i said i would say something like well i haven't seen your dog yet i don't know what's going on but just so that we can keep everyone safe until i see you can we make sure that um, the dog's separated when they're unsupervised or something along those lines. Try to get some kind of commitment to them. It's easier to shape this behavior. It's easier to go for a lower criteria until I see you, right? Instead of, you, let's separate the dogs and the children f forever, right? Like, that's a smaller ask is just to say, until I see you and we figure out what's going on and come up with a plan, can you just keep them separate so we make sure nothing happens in the interim, right? This, Chris talked about sales on the podcast I did with him. This very much comes back to the to that podcast with Chris because this is a sales job here. We're trying to sell management to, to these people as, as a uh, good thing for their dog. Uh, 
So, Connie, if you want to improve your dog training, I would definitely look into uh, some of that sales stuff, to be honest. It doesn't have to be sleazy car car salesman stuff. It's just a little bit of that sales process, a little bit of that ability to persuade people that this is the best way to go. All right. Sarah asks... We haven't mastered loose lead walking yet, but we're close. Oh, so close. What I do have is a dog that looks at me too much. I was stopped the other day and asked if she was a show dog. Face palm emoji. We have, we've had success with circling, uh, which is apparently Denise Fenzi's method. I'm not familiar with it, so I, I can't comment on that. Uh, when the leash gets, circling when the leash gets tight. She then drops to a loose lead walking. I'm not sure what you meant by that, Sarah. I'm wanting a walk where my dog engages with the environment and isn't hyper-focused on me. Right, so um, at first, this is a good question, Sarah, because this is a common one, actually. At first glance, you would think, huh, engagement hasn't really, you know, it's caused me these problems. And oftentimes people get to this stage when they start out in the engagement training, because usually the first protocol I give people, if they have a dog that which is really unengaged, is let's reward every check-in for the next week. So it's pretty intense, because I want to get you further on in this process as soon as possible. And then it's so often the end of that week or 10 days or however long we've done, I'll get a message from them with exactly what you just said, Sarah. My dog won't stop looking at me now. Which always makes me laugh because, you know, a week, 10 days ago, you couldn't get him to look at you, <laughs> right? And what you've got, Sarah, is a much easier problem to solve, right? Your dog is looking at you because it's being reinforced to look at you, yeah? So what I would say, Sarah, is probably film yourself or try to analyze when the dog is being reward rewarded because the dog, it sounds like... What has happened somewhere in your loose leash walking training is you've reinforced the dog for looking at you and now that's become part of the behavior, right? How to solve this is going to come down to the timing of the reward and also reward placement. I quite I love reward placement on loose lead walking because I think it makes a massive difference. So if you have a dog that is staring at you and that's your only problem in the loose lead walking stuff then what i would do is uh walk your dog in lucid walking as soon as they glance away from you mark and reward right so now what you're you're shifting the criteria you're shifting the criteria from walk next to me and look at me to walk next to me and don't look at me (laughs) right or just look into the environment don't feel like you have to stare at me the whole time we can also encourage that with our reward placement, right? Now, for most people, what I suggest with reward placement is when you mark and then you go to give the reward, it's you're rewarding somewhere around your knee. It's sometimes if you have a really big dog, that becomes more like your hip. But, but you're rewarding kind of parallel with yourself because that's where you want the dog to be. And it's going to encourage your dog to stay there, right? If you're rewarding in front of you, so your dog has to cross out in front of you and look up at you to get that reward, 
I mean, you're going to get more of that, right? It, a lot of people that do the heel work stuff call this crabbing, where you reinforce the dog in front of you, and then you get this dog that walks like a crab to try to look at you from in front, right? So, Sarah, the, the answer to your question is, is quite simple. It's just reward when the dog isn't looking at you and just pay a bit more attention to your reward placement. I would bet that that's your problem. But video it and feel free to send it to me, Sarah, if you want, and I'll have a look at it. But I would imagine that's that's your problem from from my experience uh, working with people with their loose lead walking training, which for some reason is becoming huge for me. I get so many messages about loose lead walking now. And the only thing I can tie it down to is I did an email on my email list about loose lead walking, which was really, really popular. I, I got a ton of responses immediately but then it's just kind of flowed from there with people asking me about lucid walking i know it's one of those things where a lot of people are very confused about it and actually it kind of ties into the engagement stuff i talk about but i do feel really passionately about lucid walking because when i see the tutorials when i see other people training lucid walking it frustrates the hell out of me because we have reward-based trainers that are still using negative punishment. Think about that for a second then. Uh, negative punishment to prevent the dog from pulling. Um, right where the dog, we're going to stop walking. And that is your punishment so that you move yourself back into the right position. Right, that's a really common one. Or, oh God, you just you get me started. There's so many kooky, just ridiculous ways that people have come up with to loose lead walk train their dog which aren't really very rewarding for the dog at all they don't really fulfill the principles of reward-based training that we apply to everything else that we train just dog trainers just for some reason the whole loose lead walking training stuff just gets people really confused and yeah and it's frustrating as hell to see it to be honest it doesn't have to be that confusing. Um, yeah. What can I say? <laughs> it doesn't have to be that confused. It doesn't have to be that confusing. There are ways to train lucid walking, which are far more effective, far more rewarding for the dog. It's still not the easiest thing to train. And let me just, let me just give you one thing here. Here's one thing that people mess up all the time. Sometimes people, it, well, Let's just look at our dog owners, right? Dog owners are not going to want to loose lead walk their, train their dog every single day for every minute of their walk. It just ain't happening. It's just not happening. So just understand that and let's adjust the method to accommodate that, right? Because if we don't, what we have is a dog that doesn't know when it has to do loose lead walking and when it doesn't have to do it. So you're just constantly undoing all of your work and the dog never makes progress. All right. So that's a really common problem I get that just makes or, or problem I see, which uh, makes me want to slam my head against the wall or just that assumption that people are just going to follow this method constantly. So the way I do it is we have a cue for the dog when they're training and when they're not. And that comes from the equipment. If you're wearing this harness, that means we're doing loose lead walking training. If you're wearing this collar or you're wearing this lead or whatever piece of equipment you want to attach to it or, or, or use as a cue, that means you're not training. 
Alright? So when they're in a rush in the morning to get to work and they don't have time to think about dog training, they can just get to the park with the piece of equipment that they're not using to train and not be undoing all of the work they've been putting in over the last few weeks. And then when they've got the time to spend 5-10 minutes doing the uh, lucid walking training, they can use the equipment that we've dedicated for that. The other advantage of this as well is we can keep those sessions short, which is better for the dog, right? Because you, otherwise you have that conflict of, well, I want to walk my dog for an hour, but I can't do Lucy's walking training for an hour because my dog's going to be knackered and just completely lose focus. So that's one element of successful Lucy's walking training, which I think gets overlooked so often. But we need some massive progress on that. Um, uh, of people coming out... Well, I'm a bit of a hypocrite here because I I haven't put up a tutorial or anything um, or a course or anything like that. But, but we need to have some... Uh, discussion about successful loose lead walking methods which are reward based and, and effective because at the moment it's the the content that i see out there all of the time is just an absolute joke you know it's just so reliant on punishment and it's not reward based training just because you don't use a check chain or a, a prong collar or whatever it's it's if you're still using punishment by doing this red light green light system where you're stopping and hoping that the dog finds that aversive and comes back um, that's a really common one or we're doing the kind of turning around which is a if it's aversive i guess it, it might work to some degree otherwise the dog just is going to wonder why you're turning around constantly <laughs> right sometimes you might use that to set the dog up for success so you can reward them in the right position but that's not how i see it used all the time so anyway there's a lucy's walking rant for you sarah um but i hope that helps you with your problem Let's get on to Rachel. I know Rachel, so it's hard for me not to read this in her voice. Um, and also she's asked me like three questions. So <laughs> let's try to get through these. Um, what is your top piece of advice for people just getting started on their professional dog training journey? Um, so that's your first question, Rachel. Your second question is how do you deal with clients when their own stress buckets are clearly overflowing? Like, on a human-to-human -human level, aside from whatever their dog is doing, people cry at me loads. Is this normal? Is it just me? I'm not even doing this properly yet. <laughs> that sentence makes me laugh. Uh, I'm not even doing this properly yet. People hear I'm some sort of dog person and tell me all their problems, then they cry. <laughs> like you need to calm, Like you need to calm down before we talk about your dog. Because we can deal with him, but you're just weeping now. <laughs> uh, your third, third of four questions, actually. You're great at networking. Any advice for the socially awkward in trying to make positive and useful connections? If, when you get a mal maligator, will Louis just have a huge and bitey henchman? <laughs> All right. I'm going to have to take these one at a time. What is your top piece of advice for people just getting started? Um, God, <laughs> it's hard to give just one piece of advice because I think that there is so much that goes into this. I think that the big thing that people struggle with is which education provider to go with, right? Because it's strange, this is changed so much since when I was becoming a dog trainer. Because when I was becoming a dog trainer, it felt like 
there were like two or three routes. Now there are just a million, right? Like so many people have jumped on board the education stuff, which is nice in a way um, that there, there are all these outlets for people to come dog training, but it leaves people in this kind of state of overwhelm in, where they're not sure which one to go with. And I think that the solution to that is to try as many as possible if you can. So, for example, um, a lot of these organizations do either short courses or they do workshops um, or something like that. If you can get along to one of them and just get a taste for what that organization is like, then that helps a lot. Because I think that a lot of this is not a case of this organization is better than the other. It's a case of preference. Which one do you prefer? Which Who resonates with you more? Um so you have to find your people, essentially. You have to find your tribe. And that just comes from from trying stuff. And if you can't try it, because some of this is, you know, commit or, or nothing, then try talking to the people, getting to know the people that are involved and, and finding out more about them that way. So I think that that is the biggest help I can give you with the education stuff. But it ain't straightforward. So I know that it's really overwhelming for people. The other piece of advice, which I thought was awesome, that came from the Shirag episode was find someone you really admire and just ask them. And I wouldn't stop at one person either. You know, Shirag, the reason Shirag got to where he is today is because he asked Ian Dunbar and Gene Donaldson to mentor him. And obviously he put a shit ton of work in to get to where he is. Right, but he had the balls as a teenager to ask those people to mentor him. And 99% of people don't even have that. So you need to find opportunities for to shadow people to learn from people and you need to do that by getting creative and and just asking people having the balls to ask people um to come along and and do all of that stuff but there's so much stuff that goes into it it's really hard i really empathize because i get a lot of ask i get a lot of questions from people that are are worried about getting started and i know that uh we're going to get to more of them on this episode as well so there's two pieces of pieces of advice which immediately come to mind for people that are starting on their dog training journey and also beware people that promise you the world right like one of the things that is concerning right now for uh us professional dog trainers is with this rise in educational opportunities we're seeing a lot of like kind of like get rich quick schemes or like personal training has this. I see this all the time for the personal training stuff where it's like, you can become a personal trainer in seven days. You can get a six pack in 24 hours, right? Like if someone is promising you the world, you should be really cautious about choosing to go with them because although that sounds fantastic, you can't become a competent professional dog trainer in that short amount of time doesn't matter if you're being mentored by Bob Bailey, Ken Ramirez, Susan Friedman, Jesus Rosales Ruiz, whoever. There's no one in the world that can make you a dog trainer in seven days or whatever. So, um, yeah, be cautious about people that promise you the world. That's one thing I would say as well. Um, So second question, how do I deal with people whose own stress buckets are clearly overflowing and they just cry at you? This is actually an interesting question because I saw a study and I didn't look into it very much. So um, apologies if I got this wrong. But 
it was talking about how dog and human stress levels are synchronized to some degree, usually. So, for example, if you have a human that's stressed, it's likely that their dog is also stressed and vice versa, which is interesting, um, just as an observation, I think. Um, so how do you deal with people that have their own stress but problems with their own stress? Well, I think that you have to know the extent of your role as well, because when you're a professional dog trainer, you're not a mental health mental health counselor, right? There's only so much you can do. There's only so much advice you can give them. I think that it's a case of having empathy with them from a coaching perspective. Like there is a little bit of separation there. Because I think that you see, sometimes you see the opposite where people have so much empathy that they just end up burning themselves out because they're just constantly thinking about their clients and they're concerned and they just basically start to mirror their clients' anxieties and all that kind of stuff because they get too involved. So there needs to be a layer of separation there. Your role, as I see it, is to coach them to to improve their dog's behavior and that is going to take some coaching of them as well for them to have the skills in order to do that. And a lot of that does mean that you're, you're combating the anxiety that they have. Um, you know, I work with a lot of people that are anxious about having their dogs around other dogs and they're anxious about letting their dog off lead or, or whatever it is. And, and a lot of the time it's not because the dog isn't trained. It's just because they've, Either they've heard terrible stories and they've scared themselves or something bad has happened to them and now um, they're really worried to to get outside with their dogs even though their dogs have are, you know, on the whole pretty well behaved. So, yeah, I think that is something you deal with a lot as a, cl- as, um, a, a dog trainer. It's inevitable. You're coaching people. You are going to work with people that get upset Um and it's just a case of having empathy and trying to coach them through that, but also knowing the extent of your role, because there's no way that what well, you shouldn't even be trying to like psychoanalyze people, right? You're just coaching them through and, and trying to help them almost more like a friend. It's more like a friend relationship um, or, or a coaching relationship, you know, where you just, you're just trying to help them get through the problems that they're having. Um, so yeah, with their dog. Yeah, so <laughs> yeah, that's. I hope that helps, Rachel. I'm great at networking, as in I'm great at networking. Thanks, thanks for the compliment, Rachel. Any advice for the socially awkward in trying to make positive and useful connections? You know, I think that there's a lot. To, there's a lot to this question. Actually, there's two elements that immediately come to mind. Firstly, it comes back to what um, I was talking about with Shirag with the mentoring stuff, which is just having the balls. You know, like, it's one of those things, like, I get the question a lot, how do you find uh, podcast guests? I just have the, I just make myself email them, I just make myself reach out and talk to people, and there's not, like, a secret behind it, you know, it's not like I'm delving through some secret information to find some. you know, it's just like, no, I just look on Google, I look on, I ask friends, I... I find their contact information and I send them an email and say, hey, do you want to come on the podcast? Right? And it's the same thing uh, with networking with anyone. You know, you you find someone that's doing something cool or you like the look of what they're doing or whatever reason, for whatever reason you want to 
kind of build that connection with them, you send them a message and you obviously try and make it personal. You know, so for example, maybe reference something. I've done that before where I've seen someone has put up a video and I might say, Oh, dude, I really love that video. That was, that was a cool video. Um, I do that or I've never thought of that or, or whatever. And maybe I can build a connection like that. The other element is, uh, how to maintain connections. And that's a case of checking in with people. And one person that's really good at this is John McGuigan. John's always sending me messages. Taz is pretty good as well. Taz Nichols. Sending messages and just saying, hi, what's up? You know, how are you getting on? Right? <laughs> you know, just every now and then just reaching out to people that um, that you have built a connection with and just seeing how they're doing. Right? And and um, Jordan Harbinger has a method for this as well, which he calls text roulette, where you go through your contacts on your phone every day and you send five people that are on your contacts a message and just saying hey how are you doing long time no talk no pressure to respond to this quickly i just wanted to reach out and see how you're getting on because we haven't spoken in a while right so you can kind of maintain your connections uh by doing stuff like that and then the last question was if and when you get a malligator will louis just have huge bitey henchmen well <laughs> I get asked about Malis all the time. Everyone always asks me when I'm getting a, a Malinois and we don't have any plans until we move out because we live in a pretty small house. And to be honest with you, we both work so much. We just wouldn't have the time for a dog that was really high drive as much as I would love to have a, a dog to get involved in all the stuff that I'm talking about on the podcast, you know, like, uh, Mondio ring, scent work, you name it, right? All these sports that are just really wicked. Um, I'd love to get involved with them, but at the moment we don't have the time, we don't have the resources. So at some point we will get more dogs, I'm sure, but it's going to be a little while because I think that as everyone that listens to this podcast knows, if you're going to get a dog, you need to be able to give them what they need, essentially. And I'm just brutally honest with myself right now, I just wouldn't be able to do it. So yeah, we're waiting out on that one. But when we do get a big sporty dog, Louis will just have a huge bitey henchman. So yeah, absolutely, Rachel. <laughs> All right, last question. Um, the last questions uh, are from Katie. Katie said, did you find it hard? I'm going to answer these one by one, by the way. I think that's a lesson from answering Rachel's questions. Did you find it hard teaching people how to train their puppies when you first started? Hell yeah. I sucked. I honestly, I was so shit. And people don't realize this. All the time now, I'm, I'm working with either people I'm mentoring for their, um, to become dog trainers, or I'm talking them through stuff, or I'll see someone that is, uh, new and starting out and I watch them do a one-to-one or classes or whatever and almost everyone I see is better than I was I can't even think of anyone that I've seen that was worse than I was starting out um, I was horrendous I was just so crap I just tried I was a bad coach I just tried to solve every problem at once you know I made so many mistakes I tried to please people too much to the extent where it was counterproductive um, so yeah, I was crap. So yeah, that's the honest answer, Katie. And that just came through practice 
uh, getting out there and, and doing these one-to-ones and working with people. And I do think that a lot of that, you have to just be brave and do it and accept you're going to improve, right? Like, I think a lot of people put so much pressure on themselves in the beginning that, you know, oh, I just did my first one-to-one and I'm not as good as my mentor or whatever. And it's like, well, yeah, that's because they've been doing it for 10 years and you've just did your first one. You know, you're probably going to have some awkward moments. You're probably going to make some mistakes with the advice you offer. And and when you realize you make a mistake, you do your best to rectify it. And if you get a question that you can't answer, then you just say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I'll look into that. I'm not sure about that, actually. And people are actually pretty accepting about that. And then you just send a message to... uh whoever you know which might who might be able to help you come to some kind of solution about that or if it's really out of your depth then you refer the case on um but yeah just ex- i think there has to be some acceptance you're going to have to be, you're going to be a little bit rubbish when you start out it's like you wouldn't start a sport and expect to be incredible from the go and there's one thing it's one thing being good at dog training it's another thing being good at teaching dog training and uh yeah, so that's just going to come uh, from experience. So, yeah, don't be too hard on yourself in the beginning. Any big aha moments when you first got started that made you feel like you had a successful business? Um, To be honest with you, no. I think I put a lot of pressure on myself to be better and I very rarely think I've done well or feel good about what I've done so most of my kind of um rewarding moments have come more recently so you know I've been doing this I've had my own business for six years now um I've worked with people before that and and you know I put my time in uh under you know learning from other people and all that kind of stuff but I've been doing it for myself for for six years now and only now i would say this last year have i had a couple of moments where i felt like i've done like i i felt a little bit i don't know just just rewarding you know just uh, i've just feel like i've made some progress in my career and most of that has come from doing this podcast so Things like going to conferences and have people come up to me and say hello and say they listen to the podcast and they really enjoy it. You know, that's extremely rewarding and I'm hugely thankful for that. Um, I've had a few opportunities I can't really talk about, um, which are really exciting. Again, they've come from the podcast because various uh, people have found me from the podcast and, and have invited me to get involved in uh, all sorts of stuff. Um or stuff like people that have traveled a long distance to come and work with me. That's always a huge compliment. So those are the three things in the last year, I would say, which have been really nice for me. But over, but when I first got started, which was a question, I'm not sure. I can't really think of any, to be honest. But I think that's partially because I'm quite harsh on myself. So uh, maybe... One was when I put my prices up and I only lost one client when I was doing dog walking. Um, that was quite a nice moment. But yeah, I'm sorry I can't deliver you a massive, uh, <laughs> lovely story on that one. What is my biggest success story to date 
training others or others in the industry. Now, there's two ways to look at this, I think, because there are two things that are really rewarding when you're working with clients. Either when you have a dog that has really serious behavioral issues and you make progress with them, um, that can be really, really rewarding. And also, so there's a few, there's some that come to mind for that for, for sure. And then the other ones are just where you see a complete mindset shift in the person and the dog might not have been, have been that difficult. So one story like that is, um, I worked with a lady that had a, a little terrier that when she called me up, she thought her dog was brain damaged because, uh, it hadn't managed to learn anything, essentially. And, and she thought there must be something wrong with this dog because, you know, she's not learning, essentially. And this dog was adolescent at this point, and I, and I went to see them. And uh, she was very, very nervous around me. This is the owner, not the dog, um, which was weird. And eventually we said, well... And one of the biggest problems she was having was recall with this dog. I said, well, you know, let's let's head out. Let's go to the park. Let's have a look at your recall and let's work on that. So we started working on recall. And uh, obviously I'm not uh, harsh or anything like that. It's, it's very much, I try to make it as fun as possible. And uh, I put my girly voice on when, when I'm doing my recalls and all that kind of stuff. And the dog's having a great time and all that kind of stuff. And and she she said to me one actually one this is the most hilarious one of the funniest moments ever in my uh, dog training which was when I said all right have you got any treats and she puts her hand in her pocket and comes and pulls out this packet of uh, like moams which is a, a type of sweet and that just made me laugh so much that I said has she got any treats she pulls out human sweets uh, yeah I was cracking up about that. Um, yeah, that made me laugh so much. And anyway, we both laughed at that. And then she said, uh, oh, you're not, you know, you're not like a sergeant major. So I got to the bottom of why she was so nervous because she thought that I was going to be some military dog trainer, boot camp style. And that dog, uh, made massive progress and, it was just lovely, to be honest. So that was one of my biggest success stories. Not because the dog was hard, but because I felt it was just really rewarding to see someone that thought their dog was brain damaged and then ended up having this really well-trained dog. That was lovely. And also, she was really scared of dog trainers, and I I uh, managed to myth-bust that, I guess. And the other, the other success is... The other thing that's rewarding about being a dog trainer, I think, a lot of the times, is where you've got a dog that has been through several trainers maybe they've visited the vet multiple times and then you work with them and you manage to get success i think that that's really rewarding as well because those are the people that are oftentimes the most disillusioned i get clients that have gone through several trainers before they've not made progress and then we work together and uh and they manage and <laughs> oftentimes when you work with someone that's been through several trainers it's it's like um it's like you know they've been beaten almost you know they just walk around you you can just feel the defeatism in them because they feel like that this isn't going to work it's never worked with all my other stuff or all the other trainers I've worked with and then when you see the progress over the course of a few weeks or a few months um and you see them 
kind of start to be rewarded by the process and realize that what they're doing is working and their body language changes and they're happy about training that's really rewarding as well so yeah those are the things that i find reinforcing about being a dog trainer but in terms of one biggest success story it's hard to isolate one um but i think that being a dog training being a dog trainer can be a really rewarding career if uh when when you get those kind of cases so yeah I'm going to wrap it up here because this is quite long and I'm conscious I'm just rambling, which is <laughs> it's unusual for me because one of my things when I'm interviewing people is I try to ask a question and then just let them speak, let them answer the question uh, and give their full point of view without interrupting them. So it's very alien for me to just hop on the mic and just ramble for almost an hour. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'll make these episodes a little bit shorter in future. But, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Make sure you give me some feedback on what you like, what you don't like about these Q&A episodes um, and whether you want to see more of them on Facebook. That'll give me an idea of whether I should continue doing them or should I stick to the interview podcast? Should I do a different type of podcast as well? Uh, yeah, just kind of give me some feedback. And the best place to do that is either via email or on the Facebook discussion group. If you want to find the Facebook discussion group, just search for Dog Talk with Nick Benger podcast discussion group on Facebook. And if you want to give me some feedback or you have a question for a future Q&A episode, if we end up doing them, then you can email me at nick at barkplayteach.com. And that reminds me as well, I also mentioned the engagement guide and the email list and all that kind of stuff. If you want to be updated, I send a lot of kind of training information, my opinions, and I send a lot of stories and stuff out via email. And you can also get the free engagement guide, uh, which is just a brief introduction to what engagement is, by going to www.barkplayteach.com slash the hyphen engagement hyphen guide. And when once you... Uh, get that engagement guide you'll also automatically be signed up to my email list i don't spam people with shitty promotions i all i do is i send people stories i send people what's going on in my life i send people updates for the podcast all that kind of stuff you can unsubscribe at any time so yeah if that interests you then sign up there anyway see ya